Anybody need that reminder this morning? No, I certainly did. Father, thank you so much for your promises to us. Thank you that you, the battle belongs to the Lord. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness to us. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for your salvation. Thank you for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the gathering of God's people. Thank you for your word. Impress upon our hearts today, O oh Father, the truth of your word that we might not sin against you, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. They say there are three things you should avoid in polite conversation. Money, religion, and politics. Explains why I have some relational struggles in my life. Throw in the Bruins and the fur really flies. But Jesus always talked about religion. That's why he was always embroiled in controversy. Would you open your Bibles this morning, please, to John chapter 7? Religion is what I do. It used to be less inflammatory, but not anymore. And Jesus explains why. Jesus said this in John 7, verse 7. Here's the truth. The world hates me because I testify that what it does is evil. People don't welcome correction. He goes on to say in John 15, 19, I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. We don't belong. We don't fit. We don't think like the world. And the more we are like that, the less welcome we are. So you're feeling like an alien these days? Well, don't feel badly. So did Jesus. The context of John chapter 7 is the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. It was campout time. Once a year. The Jews loved this feast. They loved this celebration. It was September, October, six months after Passover. It was to celebrate the goodness of God. It was sort of like our Thanksgiving it was celebrating the goodness of God in harvest. It wasn't the grain harvest that was being celebrated. It was the tree harvest, the olive trees, the grapes. And it was a big celebration and they loved it, but it had a meaning to it. It was a reminder of their wandering in the desert when they, were, when they had been liberated from Egypt. And so the booths that they put up, they would live in them. They would, if they had a house, they would put the booth on the top of their roof or wherever, but they would, they would camp out, literally camp out for seven days, actually eight days in these booths to remind them of the days when God had delivered them and they were wandering around and God had provided for them. 
And of course, it was the fall season, and they, were to, they, they prayed about the fact that, that now the cisterns were dry, and, and, and they were praying for winter rains, that the crops would, be, uh, would grow in the next season. And if it rained during the Feast of Tabernacles, it was an outstanding sign of God's blessing on them. There were key rituals during the Feast of the Tabernacles. The water drawing rites, which we'll deal with today, and Lord willing, the lamp lighting rites, which we'll deal with in chapter 8 next week. But all of this entrenched the minds and the hearts of, of God's people in his goodness to them, and they remembered. It was the fall equinox. It, was, it actually fell on the time when the length of the daylight and the length of the nighttime was exactly equal. And it was the time when now night would start to take over from day. And literally, it was called the dying of the sun, S-U-N. God's um, incredible penchant for setting up his truth with all of the things of creation around. Every male Jew was expected to attend. And so Jesus' brothers naturally chirped at Jesus as to whether he would be going to the Feast of the Tabernacle. So we pick it up at John chapter 7, verse 1. And we're going to look at real Christian life on the way to Christ's big reveal of who he was. We'll look at three takeaways from the text this morning. From Jesus' last festival of the tabernacles. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee, purposely staying away from Judea, because the Jews there were waiting to take his life. But when the Jewish Feast of the Tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, You ought to leave here and go to Judea, so that your disciples may see the miracles you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. Note this, for even his own brothers did not believe in him, his younger brothers. Therefore, Jesus told them, the right time for me has not yet come. For you, any time is right. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that what it does is evil. You go to the feast. I am not yet going up to this feast because for me, the right time has not yet come. Having said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the feast, he went also not publicly, but in secret. Let's stop there. Jesus experienced in his time among us the experiences that we experience. Experiencing life in Christ includes living with the enemy often. What to do when family or close friends aren't in rhythm with God and can't be trusted. That's the situation Jesus finds himself in. 
He can't trust the counsel of his brothers because his brothers are not walking with God. Anybody have family, friends, close friends around you who display and demonstrate this particular way of living? It feels to me like they were oozing with jealousy and, and resentment toward Christ by just how they addressed him. You know, important people should go to important gatherings. You know, if you want to be famous and demonstrate your miracles, you ought to go where there's a big crowd so you can show off, Jesus. You can show off all the things you're doing. If you want a big following, it's just they were given a marketing strategies. If you, sales and marketing strategy, if you want to be something special, Jesus, you ought to get to that tabernacle of, or feast of tabernacles. Biggest market to show off. Truth of the matter is, everyone has an agenda for us what they want or what they would do if they were us. But when you belong to the world or are acting like you belong to the world, you need to know that you have forfeited your significance with God. And so Jesus addresses them very, very directly and says to them, my time, in contrast to your time, which is any time, because God doesn't really care what time you go. Because you're not walking with God. So any time will do. But I'm walking in God's time. That, that's who we are as followers of Christ. We, we walk in God's time, in God's way, according to God's will. Not the agenda of those who are enemies of God or don't know him or claim to know him, but you know they don't know him. The world doesn't hate you, Jesus says, because you're not in conflict with the ways of the world. You're walking in the ways of the world. But the world is in conflict with me because I'm telling them that what they're doing is evil and people don't want to be corrected. So anytime anything is fine for those ignoring God. But if you're walking with God, you have to walk in the light of the Father. So he says to them, off you go to the festival. Go ahead. I must follow God's will for me. It hurts, doesn't it? It hurts when people who you know or love or are friends with turn on you and aren't walking with God. Those not in sync with God simply cannot be allowed or trusted to give you mission advice. Can I say that again? I'm going to add life too. Those who are not walking in sync with God cannot be trusted to give you counsel Advice on mission or life, they cannot. Including those who say they know God, but you know they're not living for God. Listen always to the voice of God. Well, it wasn't only his brothers that were 
opposing his agenda. But the next section of scripture, and interestingly, John really breaks out his chapter here in the three phases of the Feast of the Tabernacles, the first phase of the feast, and then the midpoint of the feast, and then the last day. As I said, it runs for eight days. So now we, we move into the midpoint, halfway. Starts out here, verse 14, not until halfway through the feast did the Jews go up to the temple court, or, or did, sorry, did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. But just before that, it says in verses 12 and 13, among the crowds, the, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he's a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the Jews. There, there was this anticipation, will Jesus come to the feast? And they're all waiting for him and, 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 and wondering if he's coming. And and the reason that the father did not want to disclose to the brothers that Jesus was coming to the feast is because they'd be telling everybody. And the father wanted Jesus to go to the feast in private, secretly. Lay somewhat low. So from unbelieving family into the world, second reality is this, that being associated with Christ is constantly controversial and characterized by conflict. If you're going to walk with Christ, you will be embroiled in conflict. You will be embroiled in controversy. We're gonna see evidence. I'm not gonna read, I can't read the whole section to you, but I'm gonna pick out sections here of, of constant controversy and conflict that, that was surrounding the life of Christ. Evidently, we find out that Jesus was summoned by the Father to go after the brothers had left so that they would know that he was actually going to the feast. It says secretly he went. It says here the Jews in verse 15 were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having studied? So the controversy that... that surrounds him is some people think Jesus is a good man, some people think he's a deceiver, but all of them were intimidated by the social structures around them. No one wanted to say what they thought, because the natural human tendencies is we want to please people around us. We're afraid of people. We live afraid of people and what they think of us. That gets in the way, by the way of our walking boldly for Christ. So they ask him in this section three where questions. Where did he get his theological degree? Where is he from? Where is he going? <laughs> Can you imagine? You know, they, they, they say here, you know, how did this man get such learning without having studied? Like, where did you get your degree? What seminary did you go to, Jesus? And our answer is really obvious, isn't it? Where did he get his theological training? Heaven. I, I, got, I got my training, he says, from the seminary of heaven. Is that, would that be adequate? It says it right here. My teaching is not my own. It comes from him who sent me. My teaching comes directly from the Father in heaven. The God you say you worship. Is that diploma good enough for you? 
They were amazed at his teaching, it says here, but they're still questioning because he didn't come through the process. He wasn't ordained by the rabbis. Because back then, they had to have a mentor that would sponsor them and, and say, yeah, this, this dude knows his stuff. It's not dissimilar to what we still do. Jesus makes this point, and it, it cuts clean right to the heart. Verse 17, if anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. In other words, if any of you actually really know God, you would know where my teaching comes from. These are the ordained guys standing around. These are the theologians standing around Jesus. And he says to them, if you actually really knew God, who you've trained, uh, uh, you claim to have trained to know, you would already know that what I'm saying is truthful. You, you would already know that my teaching comes from the Father. It doesn't take a degree to know that. It takes a relationship with God. If you know God, you know the truth. If you know God, you can recognize the truth. If you know God, you can recognize untruth. In verse 19, they were like, he says, has not Moses given you the law, yet not one of you keeps the law? Why are you trying to kill me? And they say, they, you are demon-possessed. In other words, you're, you're crazy. Who's trying to kill you? Jesus said to them, I did one miracle, verse 21, and you are all astonished. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it did not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a child on the Sabbath. Now if a child can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing the whole man on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment for once in your life. Demon-possessed, is he, is he demon, is he crazy, is he a miracle worker, is he a Sabbath breaker? All kinds of con controversy around Jesus. The legal beagles are chirping at him that he doesn't keep the law, and, and these are the ones who are intending to kill him. What does it say in the law? One of the commandments, does it not say you shall not kill, you shall not murder, and you intend to kill me? You don't keep the law. I actually am the one who's keeping the law. Moses gives you this teaching that you should circumcise a male child if that eighth day falls on the Sabbath to keep the law. Yet I heal a whole man on the Sabbath and somehow I've broken the law? No, verse 27 But we know where this man is from. When the Christ comes, no one will know where he is from. In other words, um, where is he from? It reminds me of the, the question that was asked, Pastor Calvin preached last week on John 6. When they arrived at the, at the uh, shore of the, of the Sea of Galilee and said, like, um, when did you get here, Lord? You know what the real, question, real answer to that question was? Christmas Day. 
That's when I arrived. Because I came from heaven. Where is he from? The answer again is heaven. Look at it as we read this through. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I am from. I am not here on my own, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him, because I am from him, and he sent me. I'm from where the Father is. That's where I'm from. Verse 33, Jesus said, I am with you for only a short time, and then I go to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. And the Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that he cannot find him, that we cannot find him? Will he go where our people live, scattered among the Greeks, and teach the Greeks? Because we're for sure not going there. God forbid that a Jew would go and teach a Greek about the Father. What did he mean when he said, you will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? Where is he going? The third where question. And what's the answer, class? Heaven. Where did you get your degree? Heaven. Where did you come from? Heaven. Where are you going? Heaven. Going to the one who sent me shortly. Actually, to the Greeks, they kind of spoke prophetically because this gospel was going to go to the Gentiles. <laughs> Look, make no mistake about it. Look at verse 31. In the midst of all this controversy, and there always is, still many in the crowd put their faith in him. That's the great news, beloved. There may be lots of conflict around what you believe. There may be lots of controversy around what you believe. You, you may feel pressed in, pressed upon, and all of that, but guess what? God is always rescuing people and bringing out a people for his own name. And there you have it. Right in the midst of all of this mess and controversy, they said, when the Christ comes, will he do more miraculous signs than this man? We've seen enough. There are people in this world who would say, I have seen enough. I believe in Jesus Christ. There are people in this room this morning who might say that today. I have heard enough. I've heard seven chapters now appealing to me about who Jesus is. I've, I've finally heard enough. Should I expect any more of the Messiah than what I've already heard? I believe. That's why the signs on our yards, do you believe? We'll put that question out for the next month. We'll continue to put that question out. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Do you believe in Jesus? Have you heard enough about Jesus? Our religious world is mostly organized around those who want Jesus to conform to their subjective image of him. For him to represent the religion they have created and they will shout you down, just like they shouted Jesus down. He, he came to a religion that they had created, not the religion of God. And more than that, in the secular world around us, our secular world of power brokers considers truth and untruth and good and evil moral equivalents. If you're wondering why this world is completely discombobulated, it's because they see good and evil as the same thing. They see truth and untruth as equal. They're moral equivalents. Our political leaders, our journalists, more and more, 
Money is over morals in priority. Money and power. So where does that bring us? That brings us to the last and greatest day of the feast. Each day, which you need to know, each day the priests would gather and they would have golden pitchers and they would have a procession of people. They would have choirs singing and people would be holding branches, olive branches and grape branches and they would be shaking them and marching the procession and singing praises to God, the halal, Psalm 113 to 118. In this great ceremony, once every day for, in, in the Feast of Tabernacles, and they would make a procession from the, the temple courts and they would move the procession down to the, to the spring of Gahan and there they would fill up the golden pitchers with water and they would take this ceremony and they would march back to the, the temple, the southwest, so, southwest corner of the temple and there on a stone altar at the water gate they would pour out this this. The water, they would pour the water out as an offering in remembrance of the goodness of God as they were praying and thanking him for his provision and looking forward to the mess Messiah, the messianic age. And in this moment, the blessing of Christ is upon us. His, his, he is teaching about the spiritually thirst-quenching gift that is about to come to them of the Holy Spirit. On the last and greatest day of the feast, after seven days of one procession to the spring of Gihon, on the last and greatest day, they made seven processions to the spring of Gihon, parading and singing and praising in this great chorus of people, thanking God and this pouring out of water on the rock altar at the temple, thanking God for all that he's done, remembering their deliverance, their salvation out of Egypt, and they're looking forward to the Messiah and the Messianic age, praising God and singing. Isaiah 12, 2 and 3, in anticipation of Messiah, behold, God is my, the choir was singing, behold, God is my salvation. Therefore, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. Behold, God is my salvation. Therefore, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. They sang over and over and over again the choirs. Behold, God is my salvation. Therefore, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. They would surround the priests at this rock altar at the southwest corner of the temple as water was pouring down on the dry land and they're singing and praising God. And in that moment, remembering, of course, at that moment, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. The point of the feast was standing in their midst. They were remembering the rock from which water 
came in the wilderness as it was struck and nourished them in a dry and thirsty land. And Paul records for us in 1 Corinthians that that rock was Christ. And the promise of the Holy Spirit was granted them in verse 39. By this he meant the Spirit from whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. The powerful reveal of this moment did not escape those who understood who God was. Jesus, the new temple from which life-giving water of salvation flows, he gives the Holy Spirit to his people in order to award believers like you and me today the immediacy of God in our lives. He never leaves us, he never forsakes us. As Pastor Jordan said this morning, have we thought about who God is and who we are and what we have? The battle belongs to the Lord who is our present God and is our only hope. The gift of the Holy Spirit in our lives is our only hope of holy living. And there, as Jesus talks about the fulfillment of Scripture, he's talking about a, many texts. Ezekiel 36, the giving of the Holy Spirit, or the promise of the Holy Spirit. Ezekiel 47 and verse 1. Exodus 17 and the whole matter of the rock. 1 Corinthians 10, 4. And in John 19, 34, we're reminded that as our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, hung on the cross and he was struck on his side with a spear, what came out of the side was blood, the blood of forgiveness, and water. The water of the Spirit. Just like the rock in the wilderness. Now the sign that day, remembrance, it's the remembrance of water about Jesus and his readiness to give the Holy Spirit to whoever believes in him. Jesus is the source, the only source of the water of life that is promised in the scriptures. We have earthly bread and we have heavenly bread. We have earthly drink and we have heavenly drink to nourish our body and our soul. In a few moments we will remember Passover. The forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. As we wrap this up, when Jesus had said all of this, and everyone who loves Christ in here this morning, I think is sort of in a moment of awe. The religious leaders took one last shot at Jesus. He can't be the real thing. Is he a prophet? Is he the Christ? He's from Galilee. Nothing comes from Galilee. No prophet comes from Galilee. Look it up, they say. <laughs> the, the gendarme wouldn't arrest Jesus. They're, they couldn't get their jaws off of the ground. 
They said his teaching, no one teaches like this. We can't arrest this man. And the religious leaders were affronted by that. These uneducated, theologically uneducated officers, they know nothing. They're schooling us. (laughs) What irony. Notice what they say. Verse 52, they replied, or Nicodemus said, should we not at least give him a hearing? And they replied, are you from Galilee too? They charged him with uh, regional nepotism. Look into it. Look into it. And you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. I decided to take up the challenge. So I looked into it. Isaiah 9, verse 1. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death. A light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. Oh, nothing significant out of Galilee? How about the one who brought light to the world? As truth was standing right in their midst and within their grasp, the religious elite allowed their prideful ignorance to allow the grace of God to pass them by. So on what side of Christ do you stand this morning? Skeptic? Investigator? Enemy? Or believer? Is there room for Jesus to shatter your way of living so he can give you the soul-quenching living water of salvation that comes only through Christ? Our Father and our God, we believe. We believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing, we thank you that we experience life in his name. The soul-quenching water that only Jesus can bring through the gift of the Holy Spirit that wells up and brings life to all who draw near. So thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. I can't help but think that John, the theologian, under the complete guidance of the Holy Spirit, knew full well of the sweep of the ages of a metaphor of Christ as the thirst quencher. Talks about the rock that was Christ in the Old Testament. And now the Christ who stands up in the midst 
of the Feast of Tabernacles and calls himself the filler of the feast. And surely, John, in the whole point of the messianic vision of all of this, of the messianic age, and the combination now of what Paul says, that we partake of this commemorating and remembering the Lord's death until he comes. Surely this picture in the Revelation written by John as well has everything to do with what we're talking about. He said to me, it is done. Revelation 21.6 I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. Chapter 22, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and there will be no more night, and they will not need the light of the lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. And the angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Behold... I am coming soon. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Beloved, we have much to look forward to. Our Father, thank you so much for the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ, the bread of life, and the one who has brought us living water. It flows from him and gives life to all who draw near to believe on him. So thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.